Hi, I'm Dr. Morbaja, astrodynamicist, space environmentalist, and associate professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, I'm Ralph Dinsley, known as Dins. I'm the uh, executive director and founder of Northern Space Security. I'm Aaron Burnett, uh, co-founder of Space Ventures. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Gannigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization. Or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. This is the start of season four, which will generally be with guests who are operational excellence executives at organizations of a thousand people or more. So to kick things off today, my guest is Joseph Paris. He's the author of State of Readiness, the most profound and mind-changing OPEX book I've read in 20 years. I had him on before in season two and also uh, he was a speaker at the first Make Space Boring virtual conference because I wanted to uh, get him in front of space industry executives who need this kind of thing. He's the founder of Zonatech, a consulting firm that guides other companies to becoming high-performance organizations, obviously using operational excellence tools. And also he started the OPEX Society, which is kind of a place for uh, operational excellence executives to gather and talk and learn. I'm a member of the board of advisors of the OPEX Society. This is full disclosure. And so I thought it would be a great idea for Joseph and I to start things off with a frank discussion of what's going right and what's not so right with OPEX today. Joseph, welcome. We're here, we're here for the inaugural season four episode of the Cold Star Project, which is a different thing uh, than what we've done before. And I wanted you back on, and for those who haven't seen Joseph here before, we recorded a, an episode of Cold Star Project, I think it's season two, uh, which I'll link to in the description below. And I wanted you back on because well, I've joined the Operational Excellence Society. I'm a board member. We've gotten to work a lot more over the last, I don't know, six, eight months, stuff like that. Uh, you were on the Make Space Boring virtual conference, too, back when uh, all the pandemic started. And Zoom was new to uh, to a lot of folks in the space industry. So <laughs> now they're bored to tears with it. But uh, it was a great <laughs> chance to to have you uh, get on that stage and be seen by those folks. And, and they need you, you know. Um, and so what I wanted to start out with is uh, what is the value of a, of a continuous improvement program beyond cost savings? I think this is a key question. When we, we think about continuous improvement, we think about Lean and Six Sigma and the Toyota production system. You know, uh, they have their uh, genesis in improving processes. And processes are typically end-to-end, -end, you know, and they want to eliminate the waste and they want to, uh, you know, delight customers and, and create, uh, you know, quality products and improve quality uh, of their products and their production processes. Um, and this was, you know, sort of like the genesis of it. Um, but th there's a, a fix, uh, I'm going to say a um, imbalanced fixation on cost savings over everything else. An example. Um, right now, I have a client that uh, doesn't care about costs. 
doesn't really care about cost at all. Um, the only thing they care about is reliability, uptime, and safety. Not in that order. Safety, reliability, and uptime. All right. Uh, they mine and refine lithium. And the entire you know, uh, um, value chain in that industry, the entire all the suppliers in the world cannot keep up with demand. So they want to make sure that their machines are running, that they're making product repeatably, and they're not really concerned about the cost because the clients are going to pay whatever they have to pay in order to get that, that, um, that product. So I was reading a report recently, um, and it's, you, know, you, uh, you have you know, a, a, a passion for the space industry, and especially the, the up-and-coming private sector space industry. Um, and there was a report that came out um, that was uh, uh, held in high esteem by some of my continuous improvement peers. And it was from NASA. And, uh, you know, the um, uh, paper had proclaimed that NASA had saved $1.3 million uh, from their continuous improvement program. Now, I wasn't sure if that was no, a gr a gross or net. In other words, is that $1.3 million uh, after um, the budget for continuous improvement uh, was, was uh, removed or not? So let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And I actually did a lot more math, and there was some significant cost savings in labor, too. And it, uh, the cost savings were such that I think it was beyond the 1.3. In fact, I calculated a burden cost benefit of roughly $70,000 or $70 million. So instead of $1.3 million, let's say it's a $70 million benefit to NASA. But that a little further investigation said that's over four years time. Okay, so now we're looking at just a little bit under uh, $20 million a year in savings. Now, that might sound like a, a lot of money. And, you know, to you know, a person like you and I, it's a, it's a lot of money, right? But if your company has a budget, has revenue, of $22 billion, um, $20 million is nothing. In fact, if we were to translate the dollars into seconds, you know, seconds in time, I calculated out that you're looking at the difference between the savings would be roughly a half of a year versus uh, the budget, which was something like, you know, 400 and change, 400 years and change. Right, so it's really a drop in the bucket. So for us to look at continuous improvement, and for us to to try to get the respect and the admiration we desire, right? We want. We're always talking about being starved for support. Well, you know, if you're not, you know, if you're not generating anything uh, of substance, then uh, you're a nice to have, not a need to have, and you'll get support, um, but proportionally so. So if we want to get the support we, we desire and the recognition and the respect we desire, we have to look beyond cost, okay? We have to look at how much further down the path do, I, do my efforts in CI promote the company's vision or progress the company's vision? Now, I did another analysis on the same thing. I don't want to get long-winded on this, but I did another analysis and in 2007, Apple's iPhone revenue was roughly uh, um, $600 million. But Q1 of the following year was another $400 million. So what if 
we could have, through our OPEX efforts, what if we could have brought that Q1 of 2008 revenue into 2007? Because we had the product to sell. You know, so I think that for us to really be successful for continuous improvement, not to mention operational excellence, which is a whole different plane, um, to get the respect it needs, I think that we really have to look beyond the cost because cost savings themselves um, for most companies is going to be rather boring and not going to get the attention of the CEO that, uh, that the people need. Right, right. Uh, but I you, agree. But you, yeah. you're, you've been op- you've been in operations, right? I mean, you know, this is this is nothing that's completely new to you. I mean, you've been, uh, you know, you've rolled up your sleeves. You've had some uh, some machine oil uh, coming home, machine oil uh, in the past. So uh, you know, you should, uh, uh, you know, this should be not foreign to you. You should be an expert in this also. Well, yeah. I, so I, I went through something called the Operations Management Technical Diploma Program. It was a two year diploma program 1994 to 1996 and there were 50 of us who started that program and 30 graduated and we took 10 and 11 courses a term and that was a meat grinder and I have a business degree and some other pieces of paper and that kind of thing but that op man program is the the core of uh, the oomph that I bring to the table you know um, however <laughs> we were taught a uh, six-step process improvement uh, course, I guess, or, or a, a process, uh, you know, called Shreddem, uh, and I've done videos about what that is and how to make use of it. Uh, and it is focused on cost savings and uh, and that, that niggling kind of thing. And I never really liked that at, at the time. And despite that focus on cost savings, the instructors, and in particular the chief instructor of the program, um, reminded us, and, and he said this often enough, he did the Kaplan thing where, you know, they begin to mock you. <laughs> They've heard it so many times from the person, right? Uh, for him, it was not about cost savings and getting people fired and that, because he was like, look, you're going to be perceived as efficiency experts, right? There was an operations management uh, process improvement uniform of the, the blue suit, the white shirt, the red tie, get in there, scare people and, uh, and make cost savings. Right. And he said, don't, don't do that. <laughs> you know, worry about capacity and increasing capacity, not cost savings. Right. And so he had the right idea, but it wasn't until, um, late last year, I think 20, 2019, when I ran into your book, um, which is over there somewhere. And, uh, and you were the first person that I had encountered despite, and I've got some beautiful operational excellence books, which I paid a lot more money for, <laughs> by the way, as well, in between. Um, you were the first person to start talking about operational excellence as not a logistical or tactical level thing, which I had been indoctrinated all that time. Um, that, that's what it was. Right. And you were saying, no, look, it, it can be a strategic minded uh, endeavor. And uh, so that completely flipped my point of view about it. Um, so, I, I mean, I was a plant manager when I was 25. I, I managed 150 people when I was 26, which is not a lot of people. But for a 26 year old, uh, it is, you know, I've been yeah. part of bigger organizations since. And uh, 
So, you know, 20 years ago, I was a dictator. I told you this is the way it is from on high. And <laughs> so I've learned a lot since then and, uh, you know, not crushed people in quite the same way and gotten them more to be consultative and, and involved in creating the solution, co-creating the solution. So, um, but I remember a feeling of isolation as an operational executive. You know, you're, you're kind of out there, um, you're a cost center, but also you could, pay for yourself, kind of like a salesperson in a way, right? Uh, you, could, you could offset. Um, and so the focus a lot was on not what you were talking about um, in terms of, you know, increasing and bringing in that revenue from one year or quarter to another. That's very interesting to me, especially as a business owner, right? Uh, but our focus is more on just survival and justifying your own existence in that, right? And I think yeah. that that led to uh, a, a mistaken focus. I mean, I, I, I know it does now it leads to a mistaken focus on just uh, sort of an ego survival and, you know, persisting, keeping a job as opposed to uh, opening up the imagination of, hey, what could we achieve here if we applied this stuff uh, on the right level. So what what do you think about that idea of isolation as an operational excellence executive? Uh, do, you, do you agree or disagree? Well, you, you've, you've laid out a lot here. Um, you know, I went through my own transformation, very, very similar to, to, to what you just described. Uh, in the late 1990s, now keep in mind, I, I started my business in 1985. So, you know, it's like, you know, 35 years or something I've been at this. But, you know, in the late 1990s, um, I was very much like that. It was very, you know, and a lot of it has to do with um, ego. A lot of it has to do with fear. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fear is a big one. This is my business. Okay. I didn't trust anybody with my business. <laughs> so I, um, micromanaged people. All right. And, uh, you know, and, and I don't want to say it was a, a, a culture of fear. Cause that would be, that would be, an, uh, you know, a stretch. Cause I, you know, I don't think I was dictatorial except that I was a bit of a micromanager. I wanted to know, you know, how the people were doing things, um, uh, you know, I, I wanted to know the status on a daily basis of pretty much everything that was going on. Uh, you know, I was very, very deep in the weeds. Um, and I had the opportunity to go to a conference early 2000s. Uh, and the theme of the conference it was produced by an uh, investment banker who's become a good friend uh, since then. And I'd, ne I'd never met him or heard of him before. Uh, David Deutsch is is his name, a great guy, salt of the earth kind of guy. But the theme of his conference was grow or go. So if you're not growing your business, you got to be setting it up to go, you know, get out. Um, and there, you know, my father always told me that if you're ever uh, the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Well, I was definitely not the smartest person in this room, and I was absolutely in the right room. Um, but I came away from this conference completely a changed person. Um, and one of the um, uh, changes that I had was um, that I have to release to what I'll call the field commanders. If you think about military parlance for a second, you know, the Pentagon says, you know, we have to, you know, take this you know, objective, but they let it up to the field commanders to figure out how that's going to happen. I mean, because the field commanders are, you know, at the, at the pointy end of the stick and the Pentagon is there to support them. 
and to give them what they need uh, and to give them some guidance and some, some advice, if you will. But at the end of the day, it's up to the field commanders to make it happen or not make it happen. And I have to, and we have to, be able to um, release to our people. So if we think about the Toyota production system and Toyota in general, um, you know, they're all about respect for the people. You know, that's one of their, their pillars is respect for the people. Um, and I think that in order for us to you know, get to a level of operational excellence, we have to start with the fundamentals. And, and our organizations are 100% dependent on the people. And, and one of the things I want to make sure that, that it's clear is that I don't believe that operational excellence is something uh, new or aside from continuous improvement or lean or six sigma or total production system. I think it is an evolutionary step beyond. Okay, you're not going to get to operational excellence unless you have a systems thinking culture, unless you have a command of improving processes, problem solving. Um, you're not going to get there. I mean, because these are the fundamental building blocks. The only difference really between operational excellence and, um, uh, you know, uh, continuous improvement is we'll call it the stratification of the discipline. You know, with operational excellence, we're talking about organizations behaving better and uh, operating better as organizations, horizontal integration, not just vertical or process optimization. Okay. I think I see where you're going on that. It's, I've, I've had a, a big interest over the last couple of years about uh, helping other companies become true learning organizations uh, because I noticed that a lot of companies don't uh, document anything very well and so the story of what happened changes over time particularly when you've got people who um, leave or move on from one department to another and then the, the people that are left start spinning a narrative that makes themselves the hero of the situation and that and uh, and now we've got a distortion of what happened and you can't duplicate even if you went and talked to those people who remain uh, the, the information you got from them, they would think they were being honest, but uh, it wasn't the truth. That information was not right. the truth. And so you couldn't take that and uh, apply it in another division or something like that, right? Or another business unit. So, um, so helping organizations in that, in that way, uh, I think is important. Now you, you mentioned this stratification and this, um, the field commander idea. My mind jumped to the the Soviet uh, Cuban Missile Crisis situation, where the <laughs> the ground officers were authorized to launch nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons. So it could get a little scary when you give up how much how right. much uh, power you give it, right? You know, there's a yeah. uh, the co-creation is fantastic, and that, that and I think that's where values come in. Um, and can sort of hold that in check, right? It's, okay, you've got these tools, don't go crazy with them. Uh, but Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, how often do you see that where um, you've got a, a sort of distributed organization with a number of business units across territory, physical territory, right? Where um, people can't just walk, especially today, I guess, with COVID, right? Um, right? I'm so used to it because I've been doing this for years, this Zoom thing. We had Skype before that, right, of, of uh, remote um, work where right. you can't just walk down the hall to, to Joseph's office and talk to him there, right? You've got to um, 
you've got you've got a head office and there's a a culture there and kind of a center of the universe sort of attitude let's say right and they've right. got a lot of resources but then you've got field offices all over the place uh with with a local opex guy or, or gal uh what what's the best way to to work in that situation or get a good result well i mean again you 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 put a a, a lot of um material into that uh you know um getting back to the field commanders first off they have to be properly trained yeah. okay and you have to be able to trust them okay there is always the opportunity for somebody to go rogue or to misinterpret or to you know simply make a mistake okay and you know certainly the more kinetic um the the uh outcome might be the more uh you know dangerous uh uh you know a situation you might be in and i when i talk about kinetics i'm talking about you know within a business you know our actions are kinetic you know we're going to influence uh the behavior and the operation of our business based on our actions and some of them could be more dramatic some actions can be more dramatic than than others or the results can be more dramatic than others so we have to you know make sure that the people are properly trained that they're pl properly plugged into the organization in other words they know what is going on in the organization they know um you know where to uh, reach out for help or assistance or guidance or wisdom uh as they're you know executing on their plans um and we have to make sure that uh we're trying to capture that wisdom uh every step of the way and standardizing our our, our wisdom uh, so for instance if you have multiple facilities scattered here and there oftentimes multiple facilities will be experiencing the same challenge and each one of them might be working on how to solve that challenge at the same time and they might each come up with their own solution. But, uh, you know, is that the best use of the resources? Or would it be better to collaborate and solve that challenge in one place and then re replicate it across the others? Meanwhile, having each of the others working on individual challenges that they face. And, in, in, you know, at the end of the day, instead of, you know, three facilities solving one problem, three facilities have solved three problems. You know, and then they cross share that uh, you know that that wisdom that that uh, they've gained through their you know through their experience. Mm. My my brain is working. This is this is interesting because uh, what if the head office doesn't really know or doesn't have the the state of awareness of uh, what's going on out there in their field offices, right? In this remote what do you office. mean, what if? That happens all the time. <laughs> what if? Imagine that. Ima I'm being imagine kind. that corporate doesn't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how can you coordinate and, and do that dance, right, that you were just talking about? About, hey, look, oh my goodness, right? You three are working on the same problem. Did you even know that? We didn't know well, that. I'm, what if we had I'm, you three work on this problem at this place over here right now, right? It sounds so basic and yet it's missing. Well, I mean, this, this comes down to the, you know, basic, you know, communication collaboration, right? I mean, you, you have vertical uh, chains of, of, of communication, right? You know, going up and down the ladder, but you also have to have horizontal chains of communication, you know, that cut across mm -hmm. the organization, uh, not just in business units, but in within business functions. Um, and those communication protocols 
should not be established uh, with such a level of rigidity as to make everything painful uh, to do or, you know, late. I'll give you an example. Uh, it was Elon, Elon Musk came out with a, uh, a policy or he was sharing his communication policy or, or philosophy with, you know, some journalist someplace. I forget, you know, whether it was Forbes or Wall Street Journal or whatever. It doesn't matter, I guess. Um, but he was sharing this wisdom. And, you know, his policy was that if you, if you have a problem and you know somebody has an answer that you, you, um, you know, all you have to do is contact that person. You don't have to talk to your manager to have your manager talk to their manager to talk to the guy that has the wisdom. You can just pick up the phone and call the guy that's got the wisdom. You know, it's funny. This is a lesson I actually learned, or maybe I already had learned it because I used it. Um, this is probably late 1990s. We did a lot of code cutting in that incarnation of my business at the, at the time. And one of my lead programmers was having a, a challenge with overcoming some, you know, some piece of code in Access. We were writing this in, in Microsoft Access. Um, and I said, you know, why don't you just you know, post your challenge out on a bulletin board? Because you know, the client is, you know, you know, getting hot for this. He wants a he wants a result. So I said, why don't you just, you know, post your challenge out on the bulletin board, one of those Microsoft Access bulletin boards? And his response was, you know, if I have another day or two, I could figure this out. I said, listen, you know, everything that we need to figure out has already been figured out. Okay, we're not inventing anything new. Okay, somebody has that wisdom. So why don't you post your challenge out there? And while you're waiting for that a response, or maybe somebody you know give you an, uh, some guidance, uh, you work on the problem. Because at the end of the day, the client doesn't care that you solve the problem; he just wants the problem solved. He hired us to have the problem solved, not an individual. So it was very, very funny. And you know, uh, about an hour or two later, he actually got a, a response uh, that solved his problem. And I'll never forget the email address. I'm sure it's not valid anymore, but, you know, this is like, you know, 20-some years later. Um, but the email address was Rod, Rodriguez at rocketranch.nasa.gov. And I said, see, Robert, it took a, Robert, uh, it took a rocket scientist to solve your problem. But the thing is, you know, the chances of, you know, of me inventing anything is minuscule. Okay, it'd be quite by accident if it ever happened. And most of us, it's the same way, especially in the OpEx world. We're not going to invent anything new. We're going, we might have some interesting ideas and some notions, and we might try different things, uh, you know, like my, uh, uh, you know, ideas about operational excellence. But the chances of us actually uh, inventing something new is minuscule. You know, you think about operational excellence, the Empire State Building built in, you know, in just over a year, right? One of the, my favorite, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite stories of operational excellence uh, is the Apollo 13 mission. You know, you know, Houston, we have a problem. They blew out their oxygen tanks, you know, and they had, they're out in the middle of space. It's not like they could go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and get the hardware they need, right? You know, everything that they have to solve their problem is within that capsule. That's all they have. They can't get anything else. Okay. Um, and between them and the ground crew, you know, the people back in, in Houston uh, at the you know, uh, space centers and whatnot, you know, doing the simulations, you know, problem solving in real time to get these guys back safely. 
that's a, you know, what they had to go through to make that happen. It's an amazing story. That's, you know, when I think about operational excellence, that is the kind of performance I'm actually looking at. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't happen all the time. Hopefully we don't have to get into a huge emergency <laughs> to, to initiate that kind of thing. But, you know, what you said made, made me think about a couple things. Yeah, but, you know, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a great that you said that. Hang on, hang on. It's actually yeah, because you talk about, the burning, about the burning problem or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I hate the burning platform. But yeah. you think about, you know, I believe that people are often their best when things are at their very worst. So mm -hmm. we talked about, you know, um, uh, Apollo 13. What about COVID? I and mean, we're living through it right now. Think about how fast organizations, companies pivoted when uh, they knew they're going to have to not have people show up at the office anymore. You know, they're prohibited. Um, you know, I still don't know what an essential business is and what one isn't. Um, you know, put that aside for a second. You know, they immediately sent everybody home and said, you're all working from home. I read uh, just yesterday, Google actually has, uh, or Alphabet has actually extended it, uh, their work from home mandate into the, the end of summer, September of 2021. So here, you know, here we are facing a pandemic. One day, everybody's showing up at the office. Next day, everybody's home using Zoom or GoToMeeting or whatever it is that they, they might be using, uh, Teams, you know, to integrate themselves from afar. So mm -hmm. I really think that um, when it comes to business transformation, when it comes to things like operational excellence, the real innovation occurs when there is a um, truly credible disruptor, something that, that has truly destructive power. It doesn't necessarily have to use it, but it possesses it. And then we have to, uh, you know, then we have to think in real time. You know, it's not that everybody had the opportunity to collect and analyze a bunch of data for weeks and weeks and weeks on end as to what we're going to do now that the pandemic's here. It's like, um, Zoom is pretty good, I hear. Let's get... 5,000 copies of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you, you're big on time is the enemy. Uh, your book, State of Readiness, you talk about that a lot and mm -hmm. in other articles and that that you've written. Let me go back and, and, and touch on a couple things from my own experience. Uh, the, the going out and getting solutions that already exist from other people in other places. Uh, as as consultants and, and company owners and that we are often egoically wrapped up in I have to be the one who comes up with the solution to justify my existence to my client. Um, maybe, maybe it would be good to go to your client and ask them that question just straight up yeah. and get them to say, no, you're off the hook. I just want the problem solved. Right. Uh, right. You know, in the, in the computer programming world, if you were to learn, C sharp or something, you would not program everything. If you were to go program a game, you would, you would learn some fundamentals and then you would go out and get chunks of code that already do this and do that and put them together uh, and right. get them to integrate. That might, might be the harder part, but uh, the chunks right. of tilt up code were, were, you know, they're already there. You can put up bounties and say, look, I want a problem solved. I'm willing to pay X amount of dollars for it. Uh, and somebody will go and code that for you. So, uh, and then the idea of communicating inside of your own organization, you brought that up about, uh, hey, just let's have an open communication system, pick up the phone and call. 
to whatever right. level. I know for a fact there are people listening going, what's the problem with that? Because they've never worked in a larger organization. I have been fired for doing that. I was 26 years old. I got fired for it. So <laughs> it, it taught me a very valuable lesson about screening for employers and culture and values and things like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're not always in every organization. Uh, and, and even in the armed forces, there's a chain of command, right? You can't just bounce around and go and talk to whoever you want. So um, I just wanted to point that out there for, for folks who are maybe new or don't have uh, much experience. I want to get into tools of OPEX, but before that, um, we, we, you know, Joseph, you and I deal with larger organizations a lot. The Operational Excellence Society uh, sponsoring this program is, uh, you know, talking with organizations of a thousand people plus very often and getting um, their products and services uh, out to those organizations. But if you're a little space startup, which is, uh, you know, let's be honest, chances are that's who you are if you're listening to this show, right? You're a founder or an executive of an organization in that. Um, what can you do about operational excellence and in instituting um, these sorts of systems and, and thinking at your organization? Because we can't wait, right? If you're a space founder, you do not want to wait until you're a thousand person company. <laughs> To, to say, okay, now let's flick the switch. Well, you know, um, almost every company starts off with a degree of operational excellence, okay? Because if there's five guys in a garage, you know, five people in a garage, okay? If marketing wants to talk to sales, wants to talk to product development, all they have to do is spin around in their chairs and say, hey, I want to talk to you. Right. You know, they know each other. They have beers after work probably together. Um, the challenge is, is an organization grows. Um, you know, you go from a place where, uh, or a, a, a condition where everybody knows one another intimately, almost can finish each other's sentences to more and more and more re removed. And as you become more and more removed, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you want to protect your organization, you know, your, your baby, just like I did when I was, you know, starting off. Um, but there's a, a, a point where that is more of a hindrance than a help. Okay. And it's very important for an owner, or, you know, a founder of a company to understand where that inflection point is. They have to be prepared for the point in their career in the, the company's trajectory where they are going to have to release. Okay. And they have to set their company up for that, that opportunity for that transition. Um, that means that they have to hire the right people. Um, they have to make sure that they're, you know, expertly outfitted um, and supported. Uh, you need to have a, a way of capturing the communications without controlling the communications, if you know what I'm saying. It's like, you know, being able to pick up that phone. But what happened on that phone call? That, that, has, that result has to be captured someplace. Um, and then it's got to also be able to be shared. So, you know, in, in most companies nowadays are not the old smokestack industries. You know, we're not, um, we're not making tires and things of that nature. We're, most of the companies, you know, in the Western world are, are now knowledge-based. Um, and they might, you know, still mine and refine lithium. They still might drill for oil. They still might make automobiles. But uh, it, it's much more technology than it is, you know, turning a wrench. Um, 
you know, even though there's a lot of, of wrench turning still, uh, but that collaboration as to, you know, where to turn that wrench, you know, what size they're going to use um, and, and to what torque is all, um, you know, predestined, if you will. My oldest son uh, works at Lufthansa Technic. And you might or may not know this, but all manuals for all airplanes, at least Boeing, Airbus, Ombre, uh, 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 and, and et cetera, uh, all those manuals, all those repair manuals are only in English. Hmm. Okay, there's not like a German version no, of the 747 repair manual hmm. because they want to have zero opportunity for an error in translation. Hmm. Okay, so communication. You know what I mean? Nobody's able to go off script, you know, when it comes to these standard operating procedures, because then bad things can happen. Um, that's not to say that they're not innovative, but the innovation is controlled, especially the more hazardous the environment or the more perilous uh, a negative outcome can be. You know, you, you, you accidentally uh, used the wrong size wrench or, or bolt on an airplane and you could puncture a, um, you know, a, a, uh, um, a gas uh, tank and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and you have a bad day. Yeah. Um, so looking forward to that, uh, moment where you as the founder can release yourself because I've seen that so many times I've helped so many different agencies and organizations that grew to a certain point, uh, 20, 30 people in that. And then the problem they ran into was the founder slowed everything down. The founder wanted yeah. to be, uh, maybe they'd gotten okay about stepping away from sales, but they still wanted to be involved in making all these core decisions about what, what systems we use, what programs, et cetera. And you got to get out of that. If you're a founder, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I've absolutely. said this as the founder of Cold Star, I don't give a damn what CRM we use, right? I could right. care less. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to look at it, <laughs> really. Right. Somebody, you know, so... You know, being able to step away from that. And it can be hard because a lot of startups, founders create businesses that are psychological extensions of themselves and, and serve right. to uh, kind of feed them the emotions in that that they need. And so they're in these high pressure situations where they're the savior and they need to come in and swoop in and save the day kind of thing. And right. if you're stuck in that mindset, uh, you're not going to grow. It's, it's just right. not going to happen. So, yeah. Right. So and, for, and getting back to that, you know, knowing, uh, you know, being the smartest person in the room. All right. You know, the, the challenge is that at a, there's a point in time at the founding of the company that the founder probably is the smartest person in the room. They've got the vision. They know how it's going to work. They want to put it together. But as, you know, the companies evolve, the technology evolves, you know, the, you know, the materials evolve and, um, the founder of the company, you know, I, I, when I do some career coaching with, uh, with people, one of the things I, I suggest is that they imagine themselves being a superhero. You know what I mean? Like Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman or the Black Panther or somebody, okay? Um, <clears throat> every superhero has a superpower. And I think it's very important for the leader of an organization or then the leader of a department or a business unit or, you know, a leader of any sort to understand what their superpower is, what that one thing is that they excel at and make sure that um, that is what they focus on and that they augment that with people that are, uh, you know, have uh, complementary superpowers. 
And this even comes down to, you know, call it internal uh, functions within a business. Um, you know, you and I have talked about uh, learning platforms and learning environments in the, in the past, for instance. And, you know, the OPEX Society and Readiness Institute has one, and I don't want to get into that too deep. But <clears throat> what does amaze me is that companies will want to devote the time and resources to create their own because they think they're special. And they're not. You know, I hate to break it to you, you know, out there in the audience. You know, uh, if you make product, everybody makes product. Now, you might make it a little bit different, but gravity works at your business the same way it works at everybody else's business. Okay? It doesn't work any different. Um, we want to make sure that, you know, you can put your own material in there to make, you know, um, a generic uh, curriculum, your curriculum over time. But you don't want to create it from scratch because there's no useful purpose. It's not core. I'll give you an example of, of uh, one conversation I had. Um, they wanted to put in an OPEX training uh, uh, and education uh, environment. Uh, this is a healthcare network. And um, they're really considering uh, going down the path with us. And they decided not to because they're going to develop themselves internally. Now we have like 200 modules, okay? 180 modules, call it 200 modules um, in, our, in our environment. They started out with five, okay, five modules. And I asked the, their director of OpEx, um, who's gonna do this? You know, mm -hmm. who in your organization is gonna do this? First off, who's got the talent? You know, cause you, you guys, you know, to take care of patients, you don't, develop curriculum. You're, this is non-core. This is not, not your, you know, in your wheelhouse. Um, and he points himself to his, his, his own chest. He goes like this. And it's like, you're going to create this? And uh, he, he says, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm charged with creating it. And I said, well, how much time do you have? I mean, in addition to everything else you got going on, how much time do you have to devote to creating this curriculum? And he goes like this, nothing, none. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here he is. I mean, I, I, this is, um, I don't want to call this uh, climbing Mount Stupid because it's not because he already knew what was, what was happening. He was being set up for failure. Mm -hmm. And my definition of being set up for failure is if you've got accountability and responsibility, but no authority. So he was expected to create this stuff, but it was only him. He had no backup. He had zero time. So a year and a half later, when he finally left, and they still hadn't had a learning environment. Um, you know, th this was, you know, a foregone conclusion, right? So um, that it wasn't complete or anywhere near complete or probably not even started was a foregone conclusion. So, um, you know, you got to know your heart. You got to choose your heart, uh, <laughs> either create it or buy it. But the thing is, they lost a year and a half yeah. and more. of opportunity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And more. Right. At the end of the year and a half, it hire somebody else. Right. Right. So. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I know uh, our story, I, I wanted to create something like what uh, the Operational Excellence Society and the Readiness Institute has. <laughs> I wanted to make our own. And then I saw what you guys had and I went up. Oh, that's it. Not only is it there and in existence already, it's better than what I could create with my resources in two or four years. I mean, I, it would take me so long to catch up. Why not just use that one, right, and, yeah. and add on to it? So 
you and know, no this kidding. Is... there's like 50, there's like 50 man years in its development. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. you know, we're not looking at, you know, a, a company that says, well, I'm going to put together a, you know, a, a 20 module, you know, yellow belt program. Um, that's going to take them, you know, five man years to create. Simple enough. If they want a robust system, um, uh, you know, if they want to just uh, do LinkedIn learning, uh, which is unmeasurable, non-standard work, you can't tell, you know, five people take the same LinkedIn learning. You can't judge what the takeaway of each of those five people was. It was going to be different, right? So how do you, how do you, um, how do you standardize what the, the knowledge that is being built um, and how do you evaluate it is, uh, you know, is, uh, is the hard part. Everybody could read a book, right? I mean, you've read my book. You know, there's countless other people that have read my book. Each person that's read my book gets something different out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, what did we get out of it? Uh, OPEX Society's force multiplier program here, I guess we could call it that, um, gets you to track the the benefits out of what you you've created after yeah. taking that program right which is a right. thing i haven't seen in many other places most of the time it's we got training all right all right we went out and we did this project all right and then everybody forgot everything and went away and did something else oh <laughs> and there's yeah. no there's no continuation of uh hey what what was the positive uh, result of this what was the benefit of this and so you, yeah. you've got a nice way of being able to track that stuff well you know and it's not me i mean there's you know a lot of people that were uh, involved in its creation um, a lot of my uh, thoughts uh, behind it had to do with my experience in academia. You know, I've been on the advisory board of Binghamton University, the science of their system science and industrial engineering uh, department for darn near 20 years. Okay. So here I am seeing how <clears throat> students are taught and what the retention rate is. And this is, you know, what I'm looking at is, you know, when a person goes to uh, be trained on whatever it is, you know, I, our, our training has to deal with uh, the broad subject of operational excellence. But if you're um, being trained on how to change a tire on a 737, okay, that's a different set of training, okay? So we don't do that. But the person that's being trained on how to uh, do whatever it is that they're going to do has to have a theoretical component and a practical component, and they have to use the theoretical as quickly as possible on a practical application, otherwise that knowledge atrophies. So this is a a challenge I saw with students going through university is that they're learning something, but if they're not using it, then it evaporates, that knowledge evaporates. Like I took trigonometry in high school, okay? I haven't used trigonometry since. I don't, you know, I know sine, cosine, tangent. I know them as words. I know they're associated with trigonometry. I don't know how to use them anymore, okay? I did it one time but I don't anymore because I've never had the need to. Um, the same with, with training in a business. But a business now is not just, you know, training students in generic stuff to, you know, further their, you know, careers. They're training on something specific to the business that the business wants to use right today. Now, the other challenge, other than uh, atrophy of knowledge because of misuse or, or non-use, um, is... Uh, what I call the one and dones. Hmm. 
you know, everybody comes into these programs, these training programs, and they're learning the theoretical and they're, you know, applying it to some practical project. And then they move on. You know, they're done with their project or they've got their certificate. Okay. They're a nice little piece of paper for the wall. Okay. But there's no um, visibility as to whether or not the student ever works on a second, third or fourth project. Okay. So now um, our net benefit that we could demonstrate to finance is the net benefit of one project that that student did on their practical. Now, if you take that, the benefit of that one project, and then you take the cost of the OPEX department overhead, doesn't even, doesn't even pay for itself. We don't know. Now, what if, what if not only was there the one project that the student worked on, but a steady stream of subsequent projects that the student could work on that we also tracked the cumulative benefit of, and that the student didn't have to worry about having to forage around for a second project, there's already a backlog that's been created. They just take from the top and work on the next one. You know, that can be a difficult now, thing too, because I, I'm a member of a lot of uh, Lean Six Sigma belt groups, basically, right? And certification yeah. groups and that. And it's one of the most constant questions I see there is somebody just got their yellow belt or their green belt and, and they're like, now what? Yeah, you know, now going, to, going to find projects. And so giving them pointers on, hey, look, here, here's a way you can set a list up of, uh, of go-to projects and prioritize them. Uh, right. Where am I going to get the biggest bang for my buck? Right. And, and, and then with your perspective of bringing OPEX up to the strategic level and doing crazy things like pulling revenue in from the future uh, to today, right? That's, that's some big impact. Yeah, absolutely. Have. Absolutely. You know, being the first to market with a product, you know, um, being, you know, pulling revenue in, there's a thousand opportunities beyond cost reduction where OPEX can really have that strategic impact. Um, and, and I think that uh, we have to, you know, uh, there's a joke about uh, accountants. You know, how can you tell if an accountant is, is an extrovert? He's looking at your shoes. <laughs> Okay. So, so, so if you think about, you know, OPEX, we want to make sure that the people in, you know, that are talking about cost reduction and process improvement, stop looking at their shoes and start looking at your shoes and eventually look further and further and further down the road. I think that sums it up really well. Uh, that whole perspective shift that we're looking at, um, you know, raising the height, being able to look out farther. Uh, stop looking at your own shoes. There might be the core of a, a book in there. A quick 120-page book. <laughs> well, Joseph, this has been really great. Um, at some point, I'd like to have you back on. I, I am studying systems thinking to a level of detail, which is different than the process improvement stuff, uh, folks. It's, uh, it's a different manner of thinking than analytical, uh, which is what I was taught. And uh, when I'm done that, I know that you're really good at, at the systems thinking. So I'd like to bring you back on and sure. can have a discussion of like exactly what that is and how it works and how it's different. And I think that would be a lot yeah. of fun. Well, with your interviews and your discussions with, uh, you know, the space entrepreneurs, okay, uh, they're all about systems thinking. You know, they're not just making a satellite. They're trying to figure out how it goes into space. You know, how does it communicate? Um, you know, with the materials that are going into it. I mean, all the timing that has to occur for that for that right. mission to be successful. 
So, I mean, uh, you're, you're in, in deep with systems thinkers when you're speaking to other space entrepreneurs. Yeah, the order in which things are done is a, is a key yeah. thing that yeah. uh, that we bring to the table uh, perspective. So, well, Excellent. so anybody who's who's listening and is interested in the the learning system that we've been talking about uh, can come talk to either of us uh, about that. It's probably best for larger organizations. I do have to admit, I think like fifty people a year is the minimum to put through that. Um, you yeah, you know, you're, you're probably you're probably going to be looking at uh, an organization that that is at least a thousand people. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, because if you're less than a thousand people, uh, you're probably going to be uh, successful with uh, Lean and Six Sigma because mm -hmm. you're only a thousand people. You know, your horizontal in integration at that point uh, should not have become unwieldy. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's only really when you start you know, having multiple plants uh, scattered hither and there and multiple business units making different products. I mean, yeah. when your, your business becomes complex, um, that's when, um, you know, a, a, a program, first off, that's when a program can help. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's also when a, uh, a learning environment can also, uh, you know, be a, a life changer. But if right. you're smaller than a thousand uh, employees, uh, then uh, you're, you're probably going to be in one or two facilities, probably very close to one another. Of course, it depends on the business, right? Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that's, um, uh, you know, that's, that's where I, I would say the, the cutoff point is. Okay. And then smaller businesses are just founding who, who want some, uh, some gas in the tank for this stuff can just talk to me and uh, yeah. I will yeah. reach I, out to I the Apex Society, right? Yep. Yeah, yep. um, I can certainly help with structuring that kind of a program, uh, getting you started, getting those fundamentals in place to be a, a learning organization yeah. and not just something. Because you mentioned it, right? Two guys have a phone call, they solve a problem. Fantastic. If nobody else ever hears about it <laughs> or can search for it and find out about it, it basically right. didn't happen. Right. Right. Except exactly for those right. two guys. So, yeah. Uh, what can I, you I have a, uh, a, a mantra um, called one of you know you know Gibbs has his rules and NCIS is one of you know Paris's rules is that if it's not written it doesn't exist mm -hmm. you know I never said uh, that you never committed to this um, <laughs> so yeah you really have to capture the wisdom every step of the way right right and match it with authority darn it or else you're setting them up for failure <laughs> remember that right. all right Joseph well it's been great to have you on thanks a lot for doing this Hey, always a pleasure, Jason. Great speaking with you again. Hey, this is Jason Cadigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about. And uh, drop in your email address there, and I will be able to do that for you. Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the 
Space Field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists. And so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com slash play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I look forward to talking to you soon.